I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on the podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. As the summer draws to a close, we want to turn our attention to some of the topics our senior members will be teaching in the fall. ICS will continue to make its courses available online throughout our regular fall semester in a weekly, in-depth, virtual seminar format. So even if you're not in Toronto, you could take an ICS course for credit toward your degree or out of sheer personal interest. The semester begins the week of September 14th. So over the next few weeks, we'll be talking to our senior members about the kinds of conversations you could have if you were to take one of these courses for yourself. I'm Mark Sandish, and today we have Bob Sweepin back on the podcast. This semester, Bob will be teaching his course, Nietzsche, Foucault, and the Genealogical Approach to the History of Philosophy. So here's Bob to tell us more about it. Here at Critical Faith, we've spent the summer inviting our senior members and course leaders to introduce us to some of their current online courses. For the next few weeks, as we approach the fall and continue to make ICS classes available online, we want to keep the snapshots coming, this time highlighting our fall course offerings. So today, we're joined by Bob Sweetman, ICS senior member in the history of philosophy. On Tuesdays, Bob will be teaching his course, Nietzsche, Foucault, and the Genealogical Approach to the History of Philosophy, which he's going to tell us a little bit more about today. So first, we would like to hear a story. Uh, Why don't you tell us a bit about kind of the background narrative to how you first developed this course on Nietzsche, Foucault, and genealogical method? Yeah, that's a good that's a good place to start because in some ways it's just not what one would have expected. As I was um, trained as uh, in medieval studies and at the Center for Medieval Studies and the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies, when it was very very um, allergic to theory, um, 
And yet, uh, here I am teaching a course on uh, the historiography of uh, genealogy and looking at its two, you know, maybe its two greatest proponents, uh, Nietzsche, the founder, and uh, Foucault, who is currently ubiquitous. I mean, everybody knows about him and cites him and claims to be doing genealogy and so on. So, I mean, that began... um, Really, when I was uh, teaching uh, in a history department at Calvin College, now a university, and um, really needed to get at um, and understand in theoretical terms uh, the phenomenon that in the 50s, uh, Jean Leclerc had had called uh, monastic and scholastic theology. In other words, they seem to, uh, these were uh, intellectual traditions that emerged out of um, different orientations to the world. And Foucault's notion of discourse just seemed to me to be an instrument that I could use. So I started reading him uh, when I was teaching undergrads and uh, brought that with me when I moved over to the Institute for Christian Studies. Along the way, uh, at the Institute, I added to this Uh, an interest in philosophical historiography in the sense that Follenhoven's work in the history of philosophy was the primary, you might say, way in which I rooted myself in the reformational tradition. And uh, I found in him uh, a distinction between philosophical culture and philosophical results, which sees uh, philosophical results as, because of their, it's a theoretical language, as logically enclosed. That is to say that logic gives it its characteristic quality. Whereas philosophical culture is, if you will, the historical crystallization of human beings and communities of human beings, and therefore are uh, very, very complex in the sense that All of our modal functioning is uh, present in uh, the philosophical culture that we make. So that distinction was something that I found very, very useful. And then when I read um, Alistair McIntyre's Gifford lectures on, you know, different modes of moral discourse, uh, modern moral discourse, uh, the encyclopedia, which might you might say is the Enlightenment uh, orientation uh, to moral discourse, uh, tradition, which is of course uh, what Alistair McIntyre himself uh, is interested in and uh, tying into, and uh, genealogy, where Nietzsche is his primary example. Um, I suddenly realized that that Volenhovian distinction would actually help in understanding what's going on in genealogy, encyclopedia, and tradition in the sense that each of these ways of orienting oneself to a discursive, the discursive project of moral analysis um, has a different understanding of the distinction between philosophical culture and philosophical results. So encyclopedia and genealogy both conflate the two, so there is no distinction. But whereas uh, encyclopedia uh, reduces philosophical culture to uh, philosophical results, such that philosophical culture is itself logically enclosed, genealogy makes the opposite move and says that Actually, there is no distinction. There is only philosophical culture, 
and uh, philosophical results are as multimodal and complex as is the culture out of which it arises. And hence, one cannot reduce one's sense of what is normatively operative to um, the sphere of reasons. And then, of course, tradition recognizes a distinction because it understands philosophical work as craft um, and therefore maintains the distinction in, in, in its own way, in a different way uh, and to different ends than Fulanovan himself. So all of that together uh, gave me a sense in which uh, genealogy can be understood and understood in reformational terms. Uh, and that the final piece to the puzzle then was uh, if philosophical work, and hence the history of philosophy, is not logically enclosed, but is, um, you know, as, as broad and complex as human beings and the culture they make, then um, how does one understand the philosophical project? Um, I came to think of rhetoric as a better way of entering into uh, philosophical discourse, that it is a rhetoric. It's designed to say something to others in such a way that those others are changed, or the group, we are changed in how we think and hence how we act and live. Um, and once, you know, I'd made that move and began to look at rhetorical theory as a way to examine philosophical texts, um, uh, it just jumped out at me that genealogical analysis actually had a short history, but a very long past. And that was within the rhetorical tradition. Uh, and in particular, one of the, you might say, genres of the, of the rhetorical tradition, and that is the genre of protraptic rhetoric, which is an exhortative genre that is designed to produce conversion. That is to say, a turning from one thing and toward another. So turning from foolishness and toward wisdom, turning from appearance toward reality, turning from illusion toward the truth, and so on and so forth. And that what you could then see in genealogy is a postmodern and deeply historicistic manifestation of the protraptic tradition in rhetorical philosophy. And uh, the postmodern version of the, you know, from illusion to truth and so on and so forth would be from the closed determinacy of nature to the, uh, the open possibilities of art. In other words, you know, human existence as a work of art. So that would be how I would uh, put the uh, internal intention of the genealogical conversion. So there you go. So what kind of students from what kinds of disciplines might the content of this course speak to? Yeah. So obviously people interested in the history of philosophy, the history of theology, I think, uh, also. But, uh, you know, social theorists of a variety of different kinds. It's, it's um, you know, for a paper that I was writing in the early 2000 aughts, where I was working with uh, Foucault, 
um, I just started uh, making a, a list of various disciplines in which you could find uh, Foucaultian or genealogical uh, readings of the discipline. And I was shocked. It was like 23 disciplines, including things where you would never expect, like accounting, for heaven's sake. So, you know, it, uh, you know Foucault and the genealogical uh, approach, the genealogical way of, of, of reading the formation of uh, an academic understanding of the world, you know, from one perspective, disciplinary perspective or the other, it's uh, very, very interdisciplinary. If you're interested in the history of psychology as a way of understanding the world, the history of sociology as a way of understanding the world, anthropology. I mean, they all have uh, significant uh, bodies of genealogical uh, writing coming to terms with them. Postmodern thought generally, uh, there is there are connections to be drawn between um, uh, genealogy and deconstruction. So that gets you into the whole Derrida industry. Genealogy can be used as a kind of generic term for those critical approaches to disciplines and the understandings uh, that become dominant in, in disciplines. Yeah, it's a, as a kind of general term for the the the, the Nietzschean side, uh, the Nietzschean deposit, you might say, in uh, postmodern discourses. In terms of method, I suppose, um, what does this genealogical conversion that you were just talking about look like? How how does it come about? In in my course, I talk about the genealogical move. And that is, uh, in other words, the, the, what engineers the ex, the ex exhortation is a is a, a prior analysis of uh, the way we speak about the world, in which, you know, that field that we call the that one could say is the way we speak about X, is uh, we juxtapose X to something else in such a way that X is uh, what ought to be and the something else is what ought not to be, right? So in other words, there's an analysis of a discourse where that particular distinction between a perfection and its privation, to use the rhetoric language, is front and center. So, you know, uh, Nature and culture, where you know the, the human reality is seen to be the fuller and hence the perfection of reality, and nature is then uh, a privation. This is you know this is uh, one of the ways in which uh, 19th century uh, social theory tried to understand the relationship between human beings on the one hand and the non-human world on the other. So you have a positive and it's privative, and the genealogical move is to work with that distinction as we speak it in such a way that one is enabled to see that the privileged term, the term we want, the perfection, is nothing but the privative term or the term we don't want in disguise. So we look at it. We look at uh, texts of uh, Nietzsche where that this is brought out. We look at texts of um, Foucault where this is brought out, 
And then we go to Plato and Aristotle and Cicero. Anyways, a, a number of um, ancient and then even uh, medieval texts uh, in order to see that same move being made as the jumping off point for uh, exhortation. So early on, you mentioned three different approaches to um, kind of the understanding of history of philosophy. Uh, you mentioned encyclopedia, you mentioned tradition, and then you mentioned uh, this genealogy, this method we've been talking about. And you offered what I think is a, a sympathetic description of kind of the differences among those three. And looking at Nietzsche in particular, um, and, you know, postmodernism as a general category, there tends to be a kind of skepticism, especially on the part of Christians, toward his writing. And I wonder, what do you make of this skepticism, in particular toward Nietzsche and his writing? Yeah, I mean, uh, if we take Nietzsche as our jumping off point, as you must, if you're dealing with genealogy, um, you know, Nietzsche is someone who has a, a very, very uh, rhetorically heightened uh, criticism of Christianity as he understands it. And uh, maybe this is just projection, but I, I always, before I read Nietzsche, uh, just assumed that uh, critique of Christianity and Christians was largely uh, engineered in, in ignorance. In other words, that there was some control belief that made it difficult for the criticizers to see Christians and Christianity uh, in their true light. That sounds very naive now, but that's exactly how I felt. And then when I read Nietzsche's uh, Genealogy of Morals, The Antichrist, uh, Beyond Good and Evil, I realized, and I found it very shocking, that no, he understood certainly the kind of Christianity that I'd grown up with in, and he despises it and us, and it's 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 so it's very shocking and very off-putting. Uh, and uh, the the response is normally very very negative, and so he becomes uh, a kind of whipping boy for everything that the kind of Christianity that he critiques and and has an allergic response to holds dear. So, of course, he becomes the inverse, if you will, the perverse inverse, um, and therefore is treated as the perverted inverse uh, rhetorically in uh, Christian readings of him. So it's very difficult to find uh, Christian responses that aren't that don't uh, do him the the honor, so quote unquote, uh, of hating him the way he hates them or us, and uh, unfortunately, uh, that kind of approach where he's identified with relativism, capital R, uh, with nihilism, capital N, and so on and so forth is um, that you really aren't, you, you really can't listen to him. In other words, he's confronted uh, with inoculative intent. In other words, to inoculate Christians from the damage uh, that, they, that Christians might take by confronting a man who knows them and despises them. And unfortunately, uh, when you do that, you make it so that you can't actually hear him. 
and hear that uh, there may be things you need to learn about yourself, ways in which you too can undergo some kind of conversion, you know, not out of Christianity, but to uh, maybe a better version or a transvalued version of it. I want to pick up on this idea of uh, being inoculated against Nietzsche. What do you think is something someone might learn from Nietzsche in particular if they could avoid being inoculated, uh, as you've just said, to what he has to say, if, if one could hear him as you suggest? Um, I think there have been movements within Christianity uh, that fit exactly um, the uh, criticism of, you know, that it's, it's just the resentment of the weak. There are movements within and dimensions of Christianity, you know, certain forms of pietism, and in particular the, the kind of bourgeois pietism of 19th century Lutheranism and Calvinism, for example, that, you know, that he knew so well because, of course, he grew up in uh, such a home where that's just right, where, where there's a real resentment uh, toward the world um, and an insistence that a proper Christian living is just doing without the graces to be had in the creation at large. Uh, so that's something that can't be heard, that gets lost. And yet it's you know a deeply a part of any of the, the traditions of thought and sensibility, uh, certainly within Protestantism, that owe their being to pietism. Uh, and there is, of course, uh, in the Catholic world, uh, equivalence of pietism, because, you know, we're part of the same general culture. So we tend to have a kind of uh, isomorphic history, even when we live side by side. And that's true of Judaism in uh, Europe as well. Also, uh, his general orientation, which is to say that uh, if we were to trust what is currently on offer in our civilization, you know, it's heading toward disaster and it will end in disaster. Uh, so, in other words, if we are to find that in which we can trust, it, we have to look beyond the possibilities of our own culture. And that strikes me as actually um, his appropriation of the Christian eschatological uh, tradition. The time, as it were, confronts us uh, in two directions. You know, the one comes to us from the past and initiates in our hearts an expectation of things in the future. But that is ruled to what has been. But then there is, but there is that a that comes to us, that we are confronted with, that comes to us from the future. And that is, of course, what the eschatological tradition is formed by. Uh, and he had a very, very clear sense, if you will, of what uh, Nick Ansel calls the transcendental direction of time. You know, that, that things come to us from uh, the future. Um, and uh, that the world made right is not a completely continuous with the world as it has been, um, but rather, um, you know, beyond expectation is anticipation and anticipation of the new. That Nietzsche sees, and that, I mean, his overman is, is a way of, uh, beginning to think through what that anticipation uh, looks like. And the overman doesn't exist and can't exist in the present world. 
So as a way of wrapping things up today, I wonder if you could point us toward one or two resources for someone who wants to start reading more into um, this genealogical method. Well, the one I've chosen is the genealogy of morals, and that's the Nietzsche that we read. That You might see that as the, the founding text of the genealogical tradition. Yeah, that's, that's a great place to start, but I mean, you can branch out from there because this, you know, this, the relationship between good and evil uh, in the present context and its problematic features uh, of that are um, things that he looks at from all sorts of perspectives um, in terms of time. Part and parcel of his untimely meditations is one meditation on the advantages and disadvantages of history. That's another really good place to look at his orientation to the human experience through time and how we in, engage with uh, the past uh, in order to uh, understand the present uh, and the future. So alongside those texts, are there any perhaps like commentaries that you've found particularly useful for someone who might be just starting starting out reading Nietzsche? Well, uh, Kaufman is a classic commentator, uh, Walter Kaufman. Uh, he does a lot of the translations that are available in English, but he's also um, written uh, you know, countless commentaries on Nietzsche's thought. Uh, from a Christian point of view, and even, I would say, a reformational point of view, um, a reformational point of view, there's more than one, is Merrill Westfall has a book on the, the Christian uses of atheism, where he deals with what he calls the three masters of suspicion, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. Uh, and his uh, stuff on Nietzsche in there is very, very good. I mean, it is all about what do Christians need to learn from you know, uh, Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun the movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Mark, what's your pleasure? So I'm gonna depart from our typical pleasures of like music, uh, music or books or TV shows and whatnot, and um, reveal to our listeners that there's a bit of a nerdy side to me <laughs> beyond the philosophy nerd which i guess is nerdy as well but i don't think it's nerdy but uh there is a computer side to me and most people would not find this so pleasurable but for me i like systems to work well and uh when they don't work well i try to tweak them until they're like perfect and so I've had some frustrations with my laptop recently and like a month ago I replaced the battery which was a great call and then I had always had this problem that like it, my Bluetooth wouldn't work very well on my laptop. So I decided to replace my Bluetooth card in my laptop hmm. and so yesterday I like took my laptop apart and 
put the new Bluetooth card in and now I can just like walk all over the house with my Bluetooth headphones in and it actually works. So I'm pumped. That's all I'd have to say. <laughs> uh, I can also attest to your dissatisfaction with ill-working computer systems. Your relentless dissatisfaction with ill-working computer systems. Yours. Uh, but it still is ill-working, despite your best efforts. Um, my, so my pleasure is also a bit out of the realm of our ordinary purview here while we're recording uh, as of yesterday. My housemates and I uh, completed our post-travel quarantine since uh, one of my roommates came back from BC. So 14 days of staying inside our very, very small apartment came to an end. And so we have a fire pit uh, in our backyard and celebrated by having some s'mores and some hot dogs and grilling some peaches, which were actually really delicious. That's a strange concept to me. Grilling peaches? Yeah. That's a thing? People do that? Oh, you got to try it, man. It's like a, it's the best parts of like a peach cobbler or like a peach pie or whatever. And you also get like nice smoky flavor and you just like cut the peaches in half and like brush them with either like maple syrup or like an oil of some kind and just slap them on there till they get a little bit brown and done. And oh, they're so good. That's one aspect of my pleasure. The other aspect was all of the other parts of the food as well. Um, but my real source of pleasure was the fact that I was able to build this fire in our backyard on my own with matches and sticks and paper and wood and that's it. And just feeling very capable and outdoorsy. It also just made me want to go camping. It's a very primitive pleasure. I know. That's what I was thinking too. I was like my inner cave person would be is very happy right now <laughs> back to your roots that's it for our show this week if you'd like to learn more about this course Nietzsche Foucault and the genealogical approach to the history of philosophy taking place online this fall every Tuesday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. eastern time or if you'd like to register for the course, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith@icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. I think you always get all high-pitched at the end there.